This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Prue Clark. Young audiences were once an afterthought to news organisations. People in their 20s didn't have much income and weren't much interest to advertisers. There was a popular wisdom that young people didn't care about the news until they got into their 30s and got serious with kids and a mortgage. Well, things have changed. The digital revolution of the news business means news outlets need to reach every potential audience if they're to be sustainable. It's also thrown up opportunities for new players to do news differently and test that theory that young people don't care about the news. Today we have two pioneers in the young news space. Matilda Bosley is a Walkley Award-winning journalist for Guardian Australia. Matilda was the first Australian journalist to do journalism on TikTok, where several of her videos have gone viral on a global scale. Sam Kozlowski is co-founder of The Daily Oz, a social media-first news organisation targeted at young Australians that's grown its audience to 260,000 in the last two years. For the record, they're both in their 20s, Gen Z... They were pre-teens when the iPhone debuted. Sam and Matilda, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Sam, are young people really interested in news? They really are. And it is a uphill battle to get people to accept that. But once they lean into it, I think you'll actually find that young people are passionate and intelligent and interested and compassionate and are ready to have proper conversations about issues and don't have to be sworn at. They don't have to be entertained. Sometimes it's just about treating them with respect and, and giving them good content. So explain the thinking behind The Daily Oz. So The Daily Oz was started over four and a half years ago now by Zara, the other co-founder and I, and we started it as a way for our friends to get briefings from the news before they went on a date. So it started as a very simple task of updating people to sound smart at dinner. It didn't grow very quickly for almost three years and it kind of was just our friend group. And then as young people started to really care more about the decisions being made, particularly at a state and federal political level, the beginning of the pandemic, it took off. So we were on 5,000 followers at the beginning of COVID, 50,000 this time last year. And now we've got an audience of almost 270,000 on Instagram. And we've got a podcast and newsletter as well. And we're changing the game of youth media in Australia by talking to young people with the dignity we think that they deserve in the media. 
So we're going to listen to a clip from the podcast in a second, but just describe what social media first means. It basically means that we don't expect our readers to be linked out to anywhere else online to consume the full content that they get. In a liberal interpretation of social first, we see that to mean, you know, Spotify, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. But they should be able to receive the entire article and then keep going on their social media scrolling. We're a speed bump. We literally don't want people's attentions for longer than a couple of minutes to tell them something interesting and then they can keep going about their day. Because that's where they are. They're not going to the home pages. Exactly. They're not browsing web. They're browsing social media. And we know from screen time statistics that we spend a lot of time in app. And that shouldn't be a barrier to entry, we think, to people who don't read news already. OK, we'll talk a bit more about that. But first, let's just have a listen to a clip from the Daily Oz. So this is Sam Kozlowski and his co-founder and co-host, Zara Seidler, on their podcast. Good morning, team. Welcome to the Daily Oz. My name is Sam Kozlowski. Zara, we heard some news yesterday about former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. What's going on there? So yesterday, ICAC, which is the corruption body that's investigating the former Premier, announced its witness list. And we found out from that list that former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird is being called as a witness, as is current Deputy Premier Stuart Ayres. The public hearings in this inquiry begin on Monday next week. So can you explain the style a bit? One key focus that we have with every news story that we bring to our listeners or readers is making sure that they understand the building blocks that have gone into that story. We take the approach that the news is like constant stream of Home and Away episodes. And if you pick up a random Wednesday night of Home and Away, you're not going to understand why so-and-so is in a coma. And so you need to understand the plot lines and the characters. So instead of just jumping into a report about ICAC, we define it every day because we don't want to run the risk that that person's going to have a negative interaction with our bulletin and feel lost and feel like they're not quite in touch with what the story is about. So we're constantly building this library of definitions and explainers that allow people to jump into much better journalism and much more in-depth journalism available in Australia, such as the company that Matilda works for, with understanding those key elements and not feeling like they're a stranger in the news environment. So, Matilda, let's talk about TikTok, which will be um, some strange concept, I'm sure, to a lot of listeners. The first person who really broke out in this space was Dave Jorgensen at the Washington Post, who is actually now up to about a million followers in the last two years. I know you looked at what Dave was doing. Tell us how you went from there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was just on TikTok as a consumer, really, and to a damaging degree to my own mental and physical health. But I think it was really interesting to see what Dave had been doing, which was he was making content that was basically just giving a bit of an inside look at what the Washington Post newsroom was like. And that's kind of really what TikTok is. I think there's an outward perception that it's just sort of dancing videos or maybe is more your classic social media, but really it's a bunch of different accounts of someone providing a little bit of insight into their life and their specific areas of interest and people just tune in. And that can be talking about the media, it can be talking about social issues, and it's transformed into this place where we're having really serious discussions on TikTok. And so what really fascinated me 
about what Dave was doing with the Washington Post was that there was interest in this. And at the start, it wasn't straight up news explainers. It was that newsroom comedy content. Breaking down the, the journalism process, I think, is a very big thing in the US, right? To build trust, to say this is how the journalism's done. Definitely. And because we are in a space where partially because mainstream media aren't on these platforms, there is a lot of disconnect between how the actual process of news works and actually having trust in those places. So I thought what he was doing was really fantastic. And I sort of saw that maybe there was the potential for there to be straight up news content there as well. And there is straight up news content on TikTok. It's everywhere on TikTok. It's just that it's not coming from mainstream media. It's coming from people who are interested in the topic with a variety of veracity when it comes to fact-checking and where they're coming from from a political point of view and things like that. And so it struck me as quite important if these conversations are going on, mainstream media should be a part of these conversations. They don't need to be leading these conversations. They don't need to be the only voice. But I think it's important to give young people the option of having a organisation that has a level of accountability and fact-checking processes and, you know, consequences if they do the wrong thing, you know, if I say the wrong thing in a video, there's consequences to my own career. Having that accountability there as one of the voices that is taking part of these conversations, I think is really important. What Sam was saying about people don't click through to news anymore. It's this weird concept that maybe the death of democracy is the click barrier on Facebook between the headline and the actual article. And that's why I feel like TikTok is such a powerful platform because even more than Instagram or Facebook or any of these places, one, there's no click through. It gets delivered directly to your For You page for people that don't know the whole app basically works. Just a sort of endless stream of videos that it delivers to you. That's really important, I think, because people's social media experience has been Facebook you do have to click on the link, right? As you're saying, the video just comes up and you're in it. Yeah, if you catch someone's attention in the first 10 seconds or so, they'll probably stay for the minute. It doesn't require any effort on the part of the reader or the viewer in this case. The way that the TikTok algorithm works, it's not just your followers that see your work. It shoots your videos out to everyone it thinks might be interested in them, basically. And then depending on how it goes, it will shoot it out to more and more people. And for those reasons, the platform has this huge amount of potential potential to expose the younger demographics that are using it to mainstream media news analysis content that they might not choose to look up but if you deliver it to them they're definitely interested Mm. it's not apathy it's just the way that social media works nowadays doesn't really encourage people seeking out news it's important to bring that news to them all right let's have a listen i'll have you talk about what this is afterwards Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban. This is huge international news, so here's a crash course with all the basics that you need to know. The Taliban is an ultra-fundamentalist Islamist militant group that controlled most of Afghanistan during the 90s. Although Afghanistan used to be relatively well-off and progressive, this country has known nothing but war for the past four decades. And the harsh rule of the Taliban saw human rights, particularly women's rights, decimated. In 2001, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda carried out the 9-11 attacks. They were based in Afghanistan, and President Bush said the Taliban government had refused to hand over Al-Qaeda's leadership, and so they invaded. All right, can you tell us a bit about this, the style and why you think it was such a hit? Yeah, I mean, the style that I use for creating TikTok videos is very much short sentences with different photographs behind me. I just use literally the in-app green screen functionality of the app, which I think is part of the reason that it has 
had quite a bit of success on the app because it's a matter of meeting people where they're at there. Like I'm using the rules of the app to a certain degree. I show a different photo that adds context behind me for every sentence and really sort of whip through quite complicated topics in one or two minutes. It's never intended to be a comprehensive, absolutely exhaustive analysis of that. But I think the effort has always been to give people enough that they can carry on a conversation similar to what Sam was saying about being knowledgeable enough to go out on a date later on. And then also piquing people's interest enough that they can pick up a news article and know what's going on. I view the TikToks almost as the previously on days of our lives for the news. It's catching people up to speed so that then they can engage with the news meaningfully the next time they come across it. With that video particularly, that one ended up I think kind of coming out at the right time really is a very complicated issue that was really hard to find a place to start. It's hard to tell with TikTok, the algorithm is so unpredictable, but yes, yeah, some of them and including that one do get up into the millions of views and hundreds of thousands of comments and hundreds of thousands of shares. And, you know, it's one of those things where some videos can just potter along and you have your kind of core audience watch them and some absolutely go everywhere. I'm not sure if that's a detriment or a success to our democratic process, but it's certainly an interesting feature of the app and it can be very useful in terms of getting information out there to those younger demographics. So that was a criticism of the video that it was trying to condense a very complex 20 years into two minutes, but you're both saying that this is what audiences new to news, new to the world, need as an entree. Look, I think it's all kind of a bit of a learning process. There's things we'd always go back and do differently later on and, you know, honing how to get those messages into that short amount of time has been a process. But yeah, I think it seems to be a net good overall. Sam, do you want to add to that? I mean, we get that criticism all the time that we're oversimplifying something and how can you explain something in 10 slides? And I think what Matilda's video showed is that if you take out the intellectual elite who are actually delivering that criticism, it's actually very useful for a huge, huge amount of people. And I think that is something that I've really noticed since the Afghanistan chapter is that there's a lot of discomfort with the fact that we're using new media to summarize things. And as long as we keep pushing people to do further reading at the end of those types of pieces or give them ways to expand their learning, it's actually just the onboarding process that traditional media needs. You need to understand quickly what's happening if you're going to go and jump on the Herald's front page, because the Herald won't do that because their target audience is different. But if you fail to break down some of those beginning steps, you're just missing a whole group of people. Uh, And you're kind of leaving it up to people to do their own sourcing of information, which doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. And that's okay. That's our problem to fix, not theirs. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about what the cost is of not engaging young people in news in a minute, but just to explore these audiences a little more, where do they get their news? So we know overwhelmingly from the digital news report that came out of the University of Canberra, that the majority of those under 30 get their news on social media. Now, whether that means they're then clicking through, as Matilda said, to a news piece on a website, or they're just consuming it in app, they're getting it on social media. We know that Facebook is actually still the dominant source of news of social media. However, I think that's probably because a lot of older people get their news on Facebook. For younger people, it's really Instagram and TikTok. That's the coalface of where people are getting informed. And they're doing it at dawn and dusk. They're doing it when they're getting out of bed in the morning and on their way to work or lack thereof in the COVID era. And they're doing it at 6 to 7 p.m. 
So the competition is not other news organisations? No, the competition is other people on the internet. The option isn't that you see The Age or The Herald Sun or The Daily Tally or The Sydney Morning Herald. The competition is that you maybe see The Daily Oz on Instagram or some person in their room with some very strong opinions. You know what I mean? Anyone can put content out there. And that's an amazing benefit of the internet. That's the whole reason that it's as brilliant as it is, but it also funnels a huge amount of disinformation. Like something that I come across quite a lot on TikTok, which is interesting because we usually talk about misinformation coming from the right, but there's a lot of young people who are very naturally reacting to what they're seeing going on in the world and reacting also to, I guess, the perceived right-wing bias of a lot of mainstream newspapers and TV reports. There's this big sort of want to feel like the government's totally against us all the time and everything like that. And really what I see as our job is to moderate those views. It's great that young people are getting on TikTok and saying their opinions and voicing how they feel. It's less great that they're saying those opinions as fact, but we're not about trying to stop that from happening. It's just about providing a counterpoint to that. That's kind of where I see the mainstream news's role on social media. It's not to compete with each other. It's to compete with opinions from other people around and just really make sure that that conversation is filled out and round and people have access to multiple different versions of these conversations that are happening. I can't help but come to you with this big debate in Australia right now on climate change, which obviously is a very real live issue for younger generations who are going to suffer the consequences of the actions or inactions of politicians now. How do you see mainstream coverage of that issue and how would you do it differently? Look, I I hate to be repeating myself, but I just think that a lot of mainstream media is missing a step in terms of explaining some of the key fundamental ideas. I mean, everything from what is next zero to what is COP and why does it matter? We're talking about an audience who might not have been newsreaders when the Paris Climate Agreement was set. So it really needs that base level of understanding. The other thing I think that mainstream media could be doing better is looking at the individual impacts. So speaking to people from all walks of life in Australia to see how climate change is manifesting itself and balancing out the policy analysis and the high level Canberra bubble news bulletins with what's it like in regional Australia and and what's it like for high school students and that kind of thing. And then I think News Limited's flip-flopping on their climate policy is a really complex topic to explain to young people who might not understand the nuances of media diversity in Australia. So jumping into that sort of argument um, and analysis, we don't see that as, as a really worthwhile expenditure of people's opinions. We'd rather just keep helping them understand how net zero is, is kind of like a bathtub and it's all about how much is coming out as well as how much is coming in and really explaining the fundamentals. Interestingly that you're speaking about net zero, I mean, that's what I'm making a video on as we speak. You realise that we're having all these kind of high level discussions about what the nationals want to do about net zero, what everyone wants to do. And then, you know, I ask my friends and even older people and everyone around and no one really knows what net zero is. It is that thing of there isn't space in traditional media to explain everything every time. And that's where we need to be filling in those gaps. And, you know, very much, I think Sam and I are very much on the same page about what 
social media news's role is in that conversation. It's to provide those foundations 100%. And if you look at our net zero explainer of what is net zero, the prevailing sentiment in the comments section is actually thank you. Because it's this sense of like, I was too scared to ask the question. I felt dumb and I felt I definitely wasn't going to ask somebody. So thank you for leading the way and volunteering to explain this to me and not make me feel like an idiot, which is really, it's, it's great. All right. The business questions. Is it working financially? Is there a financial model? It's a tricky one to answer simply. Ultimately, we believe that the commodity that's worth more to media right now is trust. And so we're willing to look at alternative streams of income, be it raising capital through the standard sort of corporate setting or exploring different ways to be transparent in our advertising, which is not being tried by other mainstream media outlets. We are dealing with a really interesting group of people. They're very different to a Guardian reader because they might not be at the point where they so deeply appreciate the news that they're willing to donate. It's not something that they see as worth money yet. It's something that they will either get on kind of Apple News or Google News or a free website or not at all. We also know that advertising can lead to really bad trust issues with young people. If we do um, what is net zero brought to you by insert major car label here, that's going to cause some skepticism in the comments that's actually going to detract from the piece. So when we take on a partner, we explain why we're taking on that partner. We explain the partner's role in the content and the role in the content is, is zero um, and we're being super transparent, meta transparent with that stuff. Will it work? Who knows? But I would rather us do a media company in the way that we're doing it rather than do it in the same way that we've seen the traditional media try and make money and uh, essentially fail. So you're growing, you're up to seven journalists. Where is the support coming from so far? Financially? Yes. So we did, Zara and I did a capital raise in February of this year. And the main pitch to investors was, we think that we have a way to communicate with a young audience and to provide them value that they'll stick with us, but we're not going to make money just yet. And we found people who were willing to back that vision. And the way that we assured them that it would be financially viable in the future is that we're going to try and ultimately create a brand universe around the Daily Oz. So our customers, our readers are going to be so in love with our news and they're going to be so thankful and have such an intimate, trustworthy relationship with us that if we ultimately say to them, hey, also, do you want to buy your textbooks for uni through us as well, which is something you're spending money on anyway, that we can convert them in that way. It's a way for a consumer to interact with a media brand without the subscription or advertising backbone. And there's obviously advertiser interest. There's great advertiser interest. We're a really hard group to talk to. And I think the thing that is attracting advertisers to the Daily Oz is the respect in our tone. They might not feel comfortable with the way that other youth media approach tone in terms of coarse language or hyper-partisanship, and they want to engage in a kind of more respectful arena. For example, we're seeing that most brands are coming to us and asking us to help them advertise their corporate social responsibility aspects of their business. And the fact that they want young people to do business with them because they present a better option for the planet or a better option for fair work practices. We're kind of changing the game in, in how we talk to our people and how we allow for brands to do that. And that's been a big part of The Guardian's overseas advertising sell as well, right? 
So talking about The Guardian, um, how is it going business-wise for your TikToks, Matilda? Perhaps, luckily, I'm a little bit more insulated than that, just being sort of an individual reporter as part of a company. I don't have quite the weight on my shoulders that Sam does. In the US and the UK, there is direct monetization capacity within TikTok. There's this thing called the Creator Fund, which essentially transforms your level of engagement. So likes, shares, comments, view time, things like that into sort of monetary value. In Australia, that's not the system that TikTok has at the moment. I guess the main value in TikTok really is that reach and that brand recognition to a certain degree and reaching people that we wouldn't reach before. Like Sam mentioned before that The Daily Oz has a very different readership to The Guardian Australia. The Guardian's TikTok has a very, very different readership to mm. or viewership to The Guardian Australia as well. We're reaching demographics that we wouldn't before. There's also a certain degree of, you know, I, I mean, I know I've just gone off on a soapbox about the death of the click-through. The click-through actually is quite successful with TikTok as well, which I think speaks to that ability to sort of give people enough information to then go and feel confident in engaging in that next step of news. And what we see is that there is an extremely high click-through rate. People click that link in the bio and read for longer than average readers. The Afghanistan video is one great example. The people who clicked through were the longest readership of that Afghan live blog. So clearly it had engaged people enough to go there and spend a fair amount of time actually educating themselves further with The Guardian's content. In that way, I think it's very clearly got a large amount of value for, mm -hmm. you know, media companies just from a sort of bottom line perspective. I try to act as if I'm sort of holier than now than that. And it's all about the yeah. pure reach, which is really where my interests lie. Luckily, I don't have to think about the other side of things. But definitely, I think this is a powerful tool when we're talking about getting your content in front of eyes that wouldn't do it and wouldn't ever touch your brand. News.com has a huge viewership of young people on TikTok when young people hate News Corp. <laughs> like, it was a big thing with the Washington Post was that they were getting audiences who might become paying audiences down the track. So it was, a you know, get them while they're young and become loyal and then they'll pay us later on. So I, I assume that's a thing too with The Guardian. Yeah, look, it's definitely about building that trust and rebuilding that trust with mainstream media in general. Social media is clearly a worthy endeavour whether there's direct monetary capacity or not. Do you think that these audiences will change and become more comforted with traditional news formats or are they going to change the way news is done as they get older? I really can't see a world where this generation would go and turn on the news at 6.30 or 6 o'clock and watch the hour-long news bulletin. Like, to a certain degree, I just feel like those days are done to a certain degree scheduled viewing and actively seeking out that news and actively going to the shop to buy the newspaper and things like that, it doesn't feel like we're going to move back towards that. So I think this focus on making news, I don't want to say passive because people are still definitely actively engaging in the news, but actively delivering it to people rather than relying on people seeking it out feels like the way forward from here. And so I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, the entire ecosystem in which news operates is changing whether it be us getting dms from members of federal parliament asking 
to come on our podcast to talk to young people and them doing that instead of going on Rage on the Saturday morning on the ABC as kind of youth touch points, whether it be the fact that talented young journalists are even willing to not go and work as a cadet for the big major titans, but come and work for the Daily Oz and have a startup experience with media. We're shifting. The sands are shifting. And it's more about how do we shift with quality and how do we shift with quality journalism at the heart of what we do. And I have these fantastic conversations with my dad, who was a traditional Fairfax journalist, where we compare what's different and what's the same. And although, as Matilda says, you know, there's no sense of young people watching a 6pm news bulletin on commercial TV and sitting through ads and all of those kind of dynamics, the fundamentals of journalism are still there. The way that we treat our sources, the way that we fact check, the way that we engage with a story, the way that we develop a harder to read story, all of that stuff is still there. So there's a lot of commentary about how much the news is changing, the way that we get our news is changing, but quality journalism, I really believe, isn't changing. Well, on that somewhat comforting note, but also a warning for a traditional media at the same time. I think that's a really great place to end. So thank you so much to Matilda Bosley and Sam Kozlowski for joining us today. Thanks, thanks for having us. And thanks for listening. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Toby Hemmings, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Prue Clark. Thanks for listening. <laughs>